you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66, I'll let you know that I just found out that uh, I didn't know where, I wasn't aware of this. I knew people were, you know, talking, but I just found out there was actually wagering going on as to whether or not we would finish uh, Isaiah chapter 66. Uh, I hope no money was involved, but if it is, whoever, the, whoever bet on us finishing, you win. Uh, because uh, we are going to finish the entire book of Isaiah uh, chapter 66 uh, this morning. Lord willing, Lord willing. Isaiah chapter 66. Uh, if you're just joining us and you're from out of town, uh, this is really the conclusion of a year-long study through uh, perhaps the most majestic and glorious prophet in the entire Old Testament. And we're going to uh, be looking, first I'll read uh, the chapter, and then we'll review some of the big themes we've seen over the course of the year before delving into this particular chapter uh, more clearly. So let me invite you to look at your Bibles and to read with me Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things come to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose heart's treatment for them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, the sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord, rendering recompense to His enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says the Lord? Your God, says your God. 
Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love, who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. That you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. You shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So will I comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hands of the Lord shall be known to His servants and He shall show His indignation against His enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger and fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by His sword will with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be Many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an, come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors of the nations to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before Me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against Me. For their worms shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I beg you to let me deal with the souls of the people that I love and you love more. Lord God, that we might come and actually encounter your word. That we might tremble before it. That you might wake us up out of our slumber. And Lord, there are a million pains in this room. A million temptations. A million sins. There is even hardness of heart in some. Would you please come by your grace and give this people, Emmanuel, mercy from the throne 
Lord, we need to see you. We beg you to open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, I've been asked, uh, at least on one occasion, would there be a review of the entire book of Isaiah? And uh, the answer is basically yes and no. Uh, It's no, there won't be an entire sermon where we just spend the whole time reviewing all that we've learned in Isaiah. But the answer is yes in the sense that Isaiah chapter 66 really touches on and points out and really even develops many of the key themes that we've seen all the way through this book. Isaiah 66 brings up again the things that we've been seeing since the first week in January last year. Uh, Let me list off uh, six of them, I believe, that might help you just remember the entire book and maybe call to mind some of the things that God has been trying to teach us over the course of the last year. The first thing that Isaiah has been trying to communicate to us, and I feel this immense burden that we need to know even more, is he has been trying to portray to us the greatness of God. I remember years ago hearing Alistair Begg in a sermon say, Jesus Christ is not your buddy. He's your Lord. And that is very much Isaiah's burden. To communicate a God who is high and lifted up. Not a God who's just your friend next door, but actually a God who transcends and is above every problem you may have. He is not our equal. Yes, He became man in Christ. But it was He who became man in Christ. Fully fully God and fully man. Isaiah has been communicating all throughout this book to show us the greatness of God. You remember it gripped Isaiah's own heart in Isaiah chapter 6 when it says he went into the temple and he beheld the Lord high and lifted up, making the temple quake. The very presence of God makes the place where he is shake. Rare is the Christian in our day who's quaked much in the presence of the living God. And so we don't have many Christians like Isaiah. But he's communicating to us that God is this high and lifted up one. He he said uh, in in Isaiah uh, chapter 40 that, that he could measure the stars in the palm of his hand. He's just trying to give us these images of immensity because he knows that we're so prone to fall into the error J.B. Phillips pointed out so many years ago when he said, your God is too small. And he's pointing this out again in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, first verse. He says, heaven is my throne. That's one thing to say, Ottawa is my, where my desk is, or Washington, D.C. is where I rule from. But as soon as you say that, you're telling people, no matter how big the nation is, that you're only in charge of one of them. And when God says, heaven is my throne, he's declaring that he's over all of them. In fact, he says that the entire earth is like an ottoman in his living room. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. He's just trying to give us this vision of the immensity of God. If you do not have a vision of the immensity of God, everything else in your Christian life will fail. 
You can know the Christian ethical position on every single issue. You will never carry it out unless hallowed be your name, the stirring in your soul, unless the fear of God is uniting your heart to fear His name. So Isaiah has been trying to impress upon us the greatness of God. The second thing Isaiah has been trying to impress upon us is the importance of practical faith. The importance of practical faith. The importance of faith that actually changes the way you live. The importance of faith that's beyond Sunday morning faith. The importance of faith that's beyond you just believe while you're singing certain hymns. But you actually have a faith that grips your soul and changes your life day in and day out. We've seen so many examples of this. Uh, King Ahaz, and maybe you remember Isaiah chapter 7, was being threatened with an invasion from Syria. And what was Ahaz called to do? To actually believe God in that circumstance. Not in theory, but in that circumstance. When he's being invaded by another king, Isaiah says to him, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And then uh, Hezekiah, later on in the book, is being invaded by Assyria. And what is the th that Hezekiah does? He actually trusts God. While an invading army is on his doorstep, he's actually trusting God. And the kind of faith that's there when you're actually being tempted, the kind of faith that you're, that's there Monday through Saturday is the kind of faith God is actually trying to cultivate in us. And we get a beautiful view of that kind of faith in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. You can see it there. Again, one of these themes coming up. First, the greatness of God. Then the importance of practical faith. He says in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, last half, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite or bruised. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He not just knows all the right answers, but there's a sort of reverence that's settled in the soul about what God's Word actually says. That's the kind of God, religion God is interested in. Everything else is disinteresting to Him. In fact, everything else is disgusting to Him. And this brings us to the third thing that Isaiah has been pointing out, the greatness of God, the importance of practical faith, and then third, the, the fact that God abhors false worship and will destroy false worshipers. God abhors false worship and will destroy false worshipers. I remember when I first embarked in ministry uh, uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, and the turn of the watchword back then was, oh man, uh, North American culture is getting really spiritual. People are in interested in spiritual things. It's, it's sort of a great open time because people, even though they reject Christianity, are more interested in spirituality. As if an interest in spirituality was a good thing in and of itself. And we often forget the fact that God actually particularly hates false spirituality. And more than anything, He hates it when the true religion He's given is distorted into false spirituality. That, if you want to see Jesus provoked, it's when people are doing church or in His day doing synagogue, but at the same time living lives of lustful or drunken or gluttonous 
or murderous or hateful or bitter or greedy. Sin. In Isaiah chapter 1, we saw Isaiah say, who, who called for this trampling of my courts? Like, who called you to worship me? I don't even like your worship times. He says in Isaiah chapter 1. And then in Isaiah chapter 58, when everyone's fasting and praying, Isaiah comes to him and says, is this the fast I even want? I don't even like this religion. I'm not interested in this. Uh, Pastor Jeff took us through a whole sermon where the priests who apparently, I mean, God's got to like it if you're a priest, right? No. The priests are so drunk, they're covering tables in their vomit. And God wants to vomit them away. Some of the most passionate disgust we ever hear come from the mouth of God is directed at religion. At false religion and false worshipers. And we see that here in Isaiah 66, verse 3. In Isaiah 66, verse 3, we actually hear, I'm sorry, in verse 5, we actually hear people taking up Scripture to taunt believers. Isaiah 66, verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at My word. So hear the word of the Lord, you true believers. And then He speaks about the persecuting brothers who mock them. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out of my, for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. They're mocking them. They're not, they're not serious. But it is they who shall be put to shame. Fourth, God will save His people. God will save His people. Isaiah has been impressing on us the greatness of God. The great need the great need of our souls, the great need of my soul, the great need of your soul is to be impressed, to be struck by the greatness of God. Making New Year's resolutions, oh Lord, let your name be hallowed in my soul in 2022. Don't let your reality weigh lightly on me for another day or another year. He's been showing us the greatness of God and the importance of practical faith and he's been showing us how God abhors false worship and then he shows us in Isaiah over and over again that God saves his people even though they disgust him even though they make him revolted at who they are in and of themselves he saves them over and over in Isaiah there's little salvations King Ahaz gets saved from the Syrian army King Hezekiah gets saved from Assyria the people who are sent into Babylon will be saved from the Babylonian captivity. But all of that pales in comparison to the great salvation that God is pr promising, not from Syria or Assyria or from Babylon, but from sin. This is a salvation He promises through one that's called a mountain, a sign, a child, a king. It's the one Isaiah 53 is, says is accomplished when we read, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. The whole book of Isaiah is pointing to the final salvation that will come in Jesus Christ. A salvation, not one person has put it this way, the ultimate salvation is not God getting His people out of Babylon. It's God getting Babylon out of His people. It's God bringing, cleansing us of sin and dying on the cross for us in His Son. 
That's what I, Isaiah, for all of his darkness and all of his judgment, always wants to point to some, towards something positive and hopeful. Yes, you are condemned. Yes, your sins have made you as red as blood, as red as crimson. But with Christ, you will be washed white as snow. So we see the greatness of God, the importance of practical faith. We see that God hates false worship, that God will save his people. But then we also want to see that God will save his people. Just got two more of these through judgment. God will save his people through judgment. We never want to forget this. We can often view salvation and judgment as opposites, as unrelated to each other. God saves and God judges. But we forget that for God to finally save the saved, he must judge the unsaved. For God to finally deliver the righteous, He must judge the wicked. And so maybe you remember a few weeks ago this uh, passage we read about, this, this powerful passage where we see Christ coming with blood-stained clothes having trampled His enemies. And it says in Isaiah 63, verse 4, For the day of vengeance was in my heart. My year of redemption had come. Do you see that? Vengeance was in his heart. Redemption had come. They're the same. In order for God to fully redeem people out of sin, he has to destroy those who have brought the world into sin. Our salvation will finally be accomplished when there's no one trying to pull us away from Christ. But all those who would try to pull us away from Christ have been put away from God. And we see that again in this passage. Isaiah 66, verse 5, I mentioned already. Lastly, God will shine on the Jews and gather the nations. God will shine on the Jews and gather the nations. Uh, we saw this, Isaiah 63, a few, just a few weeks ago. We saw that the Jews have the light shone on them. And then it says in Isaiah 63, verse 4, it says in that passage, it says, for the Oh, that's the wrong passage. Isaiah 60, I'm sorry, verse 3. Isaiah 60, verse 3, it says, And nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. You know, I'm actually embarrassed as I go to preach on Isaiah 66 because I know I cannot do justice to what happens in Isaiah 66, verse 20. It is literally a holy stampede of people rushing to Jesus to get saved. And it's just done in the most beautiful... I wish someone would make it into a movie because it's just absolutely unbelievable. It's, it's basically says the nations are coming on camels and litters. You know litters? That's like where the kings get carried on the, litter, on the, on the little uh, uh, cabin on top, of their, uh, on top of the shoulders of men. So it says that people... Look at verse 20. It says, They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and it's on, on dromedaries. Like everyone grab a four-legged animal, hop on and rush to Jesus. And there's this image of all the world just storming towards the Lord on whatever they could find to get on and just coming at Jesus. The camels are being forced to go as fast as they can. Camels galloping. I don't know if I've ever seen it, but I'm sure it's comical. You know, it's just moving towards Jesus. It's a great image of what's been happening for the last 2,000 years. As people come to Christ from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is what Isaiah's been trying to get a hold of us with. It's what he's been trying to impress on our souls. It's what I, I, I mourn 
that my soul still hasn't gripped enough. And I want to invite you to join with me and pray that God would bring these things more home to our hearts. We serve a great God, high and lofty, who inspires a practical faith that changes the whole week, the whole life. He hates it when people stay religious and they disobey Him in their regular and everyday lives. This God who hates disobedience saves a people. And not only saves a people, but saves them through judgment. First taking away their judgment and then executing judgment so that the world is cleansed of all sin. And this God isn't just content to have a few people saved. He's going to reveal His glory with such magnetic power that everyone near a mule, a camel, a car, planes, trains, and automobiles will get on board and rush towards God in Christ to worship Him forever and ever. Now this passage, Isaiah 66, is a marvelous bringing together of all of these themes. And as I read and studied this passage, I found that there was one commentator in particular, this doesn't happen to me every week, but there's one commentator in particular whose outline uh, just nailed it, just brought out the central themes of this passage so well that I wanted to really just follow their outline. Now you're hearing about it here first so that no one will produce a plagiarism video about me. Uh, Pastor Andy Davis in um, North Carolina has just done an amazing job of putting this uh, whole passage together and specifically noticing that the whole passage is about worship. There's one theme more central than all the themes I've mentioned so far. Worship. The greatness of God means we ought to worship. Practical faith is just this. Living out a worshipful lifestyle towards God. The reason God hates false worship so much is specifically because of the preciousness of true worship. Why does God save a people? So they will come to worship Him. Why does He judge a people? Because they refuse to worship Him. And why does God gather in Jews and Gentiles from all over the world? It's because it's too small a thing for one nation to worship God. He will expand it so that the entire world worships Him. That's what's going on in Isaiah 66. The burning heartbeat in this last chapter is worship. God's desire for worship. God's hatred of false worship. Everything revolves around worship. And something can be said about your whole life right now. Brothers and sisters, men and women, we are worshipers. When it comes to worship, it's not a matter of whether or not you will worship. It's a matter of what you will worship. Nobody's wandering around through life deciding if they will worship. The question is always, what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping and serving the created things? or the Creator who is blessed forevermore. Well, Andy Davis brings this out brilliantly in four points, and I'll bring you the first one first. True worshipers are delightful, and false worshipers are detestable. 
True worshipers are delightful. And false worshipers are detestable. You'll see that in verses 1 through 4. If you look at verse 1, first we start, as we already saw, with this incredible vision of God. God speaks to us about God in verse 1. Thus says the Lord. Now, this would be wrong for anyone else. For me to say, let me tell you a little bit more about me. Would be a very obnoxious start of a sermon. One of the lessons we're always teaching our kids, well, not as much recently, because they're all doing so wonderfully, but one of the things we've said to them in the past is let another praise you and not your own mouth. You don't need to go through life telling people how awesome you are. But with God, that's not the case. It is the essence of love for God to tell us how awesome He is. It's the essence of Him offering us soul satisfaction and salvation for Him to speak about how awesome He is. So He does. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And then He mocks any kind of man-made religion that's going to act like it's doing Him a favor. A lot of people, they do stuff for God to do God a favor, but God mocks all that. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? I use your whole planet like a footstool. You're going to make me an easy chair? There's nothing you can do for me. I love it in Psalm 50. It says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Because He made everything we eat. So He didn't come scrounging around for our help. So He gives us this high and lofty vision of Himself. And He says, all these things my hand has made. I, I made everything you could ever touch. But not like an artist makes things. Because artists take different mediums and make them into something beautiful. God makes the mediums. Artists use paint or pottery. God makes the paint in the pottery. He says, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Well, you're like, if you're so amazing, what could ever get your attention? If you're so glorious, what could ever cause you to look around and focus on something other than yourself? Now, he tells us, this is the one I'll look to. This is the one to whom I will look. What draws the nose of God? What draws the eye of God? Is humility. Humility. The one thing each of us struggle the most to walk in is the very greatest attraction to God. This is the one to whom I will look. He's not, build the biggest gold temple. Nah, whatever. But a person who says, you're the creator. I'm the created. You're the potter. I'm the clay. You're the wise one. I'm the fool. You're the all-knowing one. I'm the know-nothing one. The person is walking through life saying, I've got my own opinions. I just want to express myself. I just do what I want to do what's best for me. Or I just want to make sure that I get to have my shot in the world. God is not interested. You can get awards. You can get ceremonies. You can wear special robes. God is not interested but the humble one now he's locked on he's locked on to the humble one and the contrite one not the one who's like I've done it I had a good day I really lived for Jesus yesterday 
No, contrite, to be contrite means to be bruised in your soul. It means that you have a sense of poverty of spirit. You know the weakness of who you are. You know the inclination you have, the strong inclination you have to evil. You're aware of it. You've seen it bear fruit so many times. He's locked onto that person. You think, I'm so sinful, he must never want to look at me. Dead wrong. He will not reject the broken and contrite in spirit. Some of you have had someone else confess sins to you. And the message you sent them when they confessed sins to you was, get away from me, you sinner. How opposite of the character of God you have been. When we confess our sins to God, He is locked on. He looks at the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and then does this, who trembles at His Word. It shocks me how Christian people speak about their own opinions. They, they talk like God is getting in the way of their opinions. They, they talk like their opinions are something very valuable. And they, they really must be enabled to live a life that follows their opinions and their dreams. What on earth? Where is the generation that says, I know nothing? What have you said? What have you said to me? who tremble at His revelation. That's who He looks to. That's what's delightful to Him. Oh, that Emmanuel in 22.22 would be this people. We are low. We are sinful. His Word is everything. And that doesn't just mean you're scared of His judgment. Trembling in His Word doesn't just mean you're trembling in His judgment. It means you're trembling in His salvation. He is going to judge the world, but He's already judged me in Christ. He is going to swallow the world up in fire. I will never see a bit of it. Jesus said that the one who believes in Him will never see death. Tremble at that. That's glorious. On the other hand, God abhors false worship. Do you see that in verse 3? He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. Now, slaughtering an ox was actually commanded in the Old Testament so a guy could easily go, I'm doing just what the Bible said. I'm being biblical. I'm slaughtering an ox. I'm offering those Old Testament sacrifices. But if a guy's living a double life, God says to him, you might as well be a murderer. Yeah, yeah, you're going through a religious ritual. I see you the same as the guy in solitary confinement for murder. You're getting a level of the discomfort and distaste God has for false worship. Look, look at this. He says, he who sacrifices a lamb, one who breaks a dog's neck. Can you imagine if someone came to church on Sunday morning and you're like, hey, how was your morning? You're like, I beat the dog. I beat him. You're like, what? God says, that's you. If you're offering worship to me, but you're living a double life, you're, you're like a dog beater. You're like someone you're like. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood, of course, in the kosher laws of Judaism, a pig's blood was never clean, and 
God is basically saying, you can offer all the grain offerings you want. To me, it's just like pig's blood from you. Oh, but I'm kosher. No, you're not. Do you see what's happening here? God is saying in the Old Testament, even when there was so much ceremony in the Old Testament, He's saying the moral life is supreme. The moral life is of supreme importance. The, the transformation of the moral life is the most important. You're like, oh, I'm sinning all the time, but at least I keep worshiping. Throw that thinking away. He is calling us to repent and to believe and to live out a practical faith because He finds true worship to be delightful and false worship to be detestable. Do not take any comfort from the ceremonies of your religion when you refuse to repent of the sin of your life. The second thing that Andy Davis points out and I think is so helpful is in verses 5-14. through 14. It's that false worshipers persecute and true worshipers prosper. False worshipers persecute and true worshipers prosper. You see the uh, false worshipers persecuting in verse 5. And it actually comes to us as a comfort to the believer. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. That's believers. Believers are those who tremble at His word. Hear this. And he gives them a word of comfort in the midst of their persecutions. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my namesake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Yeah, yeah, you holy rollers. Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they, God says, who shall be put to shame. There have been people in every age who mock the very Word of God. The, the Word we tremble at. They mock. We see beautiful paths of righteousness. They tell us we're getting ethics from the wrong side of history. We see a glorious promise of a new heaven and new earth. We're told it's taking a long time. You sure He's really going to show up? Please. The patterns of parenting that were given in God's Word that looked to us like they would produce such good fruit, we're told they're abusive. And of course, there is such a thing as abuse. But Christian discipline isn't it. And so what God says to us here is those people who persecute us, they will be put to shame. It's, it's a word of comfort. It's a word of reminder. Beloved, we will have all kinds of shame heaped on us through our lives. Do you hear me? The world is not going to spend the next 50, 60, 70 years going, that's a great choice for you. You're, you're nailing it. We think you're brilliant. Wish we could be more like you. They are going to shame you and scold you. And in many countries, perhaps even this one, incarcerate you. because they will want you to feel so ashamed of following God's ways. And you need to be warned so that you will feel no shame, but so that you will have a clear conscience each night when you lay your head on a pillow, that you have followed His ways. While false worshipers persecute, true worshipers prosper. And here are some of the most glorious illustrations 
of true worshiping prospering. Now, I feel like I should just tell you a little bit about this illustration before I read it because it's so astounding. Basically, what it's telling us is there will be a woman who gives birth without labor, and there will be a nation that's born not through a civil war, not through decades of progression, but instantly. And this nation that's born without labor, born instantly, this nation will be the most delighted, comforted, nourished, strong nation that has ever been born. Let me read that to you. It says, uh, the last half of verse 14, sorry, the first half of verse 5, my apologies. Whoa, I don't know where I am this morning. Verse 7 is what I want to talk about. Wow. Wow. It's a long night last night. Before she was in labor, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard of such a thing? Nobody. Nobody. Who has seen such things? No one. That's not the way it works. It goes labor, then birth. Not birth without labor. Shall a land be born in one day? That's not the way it works. It's usually a prolonged civil war, evolution of a people, long migration pattern, yada, yada, yada. There's all kinds of ways a nation is born, but I'll tell you one way they aren't born is overnight. For as soon as Zion, oh, we're talking about Israel now, talking about the people of God. For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, says the Lord? He's basically saying this. He goes, this happened with Zion. And am I going to tell you about it and it not happen? No, it's going to happen all the way. I think it's best to see the fullest fulfillment of this on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, Christ had been born. Christ had died. Christ had been raised from the dead. Christ had ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then He poured out His Spirit and a little band of 120 believers became a nation of 3,000 people from all the different tribes and tongues across the Roman Empire. We're told in 1 Peter that we are a holy nation. And we are a nation that came forth literally out of nowhere. Literally in no time. And it's actually what happens to every individual believer too. It's not that you work and work and work and work and work and then get saved. It's that without labor at all, life comes. And all of a sudden, there you are alive. This is what God is promising. In the midst of all this false religion, He's going to birth something new and He's going to birth it miraculously. He's going to birth it as it were out of nothing. He's going to birth it the same way He birthed creation, which is let there be light and there is light. And in the new creation, He says, let there be Christians and there are Christians. That's what he does. False worshipers persecute, but true worshipers, they prosper. And, and look at them. They're, they're, they're just the happiest people around. It says this in verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. That you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. Is there anything more content than a well-fed child at its mother's breast? And here, the Bible is telling us that's the state the church ought to be in. 
drinking deeply of all of God's truths. But I'm guilty. Drink the doctrine of justification. But I feel, my life feels chaotic. Drink the doctrine of God's providence that He rules over everything. It's just a constant feeding for our souls. God has set things up that were born out of nowhere and then fed like the most tenderly cared for children. Verse 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Even this morning we prayed for our sister whose mother has died. We've seen in this congregation people lose children. People lose spouses. People lose parents. And what do we do? we announce the great death-overcoming work of Jesus Christ. And we do not mourn as those who have no hope. What is that? It's all God feeding you from Jerusalem, your mother. It's all God feeding you as part of this nation that He's made you a part of. It's, it's God raising up a nation that unlike all the other nations, doesn't just pay taxes and get treated roughly by its rulers. It's a nation where the Father cares for His children through this new Jerusalem who is our mother. False worshipers persecute. True worshipers prosper. Third point. False worshipers are condemned. True worshipers are commissioned. False worshipers are condemned. True worshipers are commissioned. And you can see that in verse, the last half of verse 14. This time I'm right. The last half of verse 14 all the way to verse 21. False worshipers are condemned. True worshipers are commissioned. We see the condemnation of God against false worship from the last half of verse 14 on. And He shall show His indignation against His enemies. Verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebukes with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. There's a local church here in town who for the last 20 years has kept a sign in front of their building that promises no hellfire, no brimstone which is essentially to promise to everyone who might visit this church, no Bible and no Gospel and no Christ. The God of the Bible is a God of wrath. And He, he promises wrath in whirlwinds of fire. Think tornadoes of fire. Like you, we were on the phone with family members yesterday, and as we were on some, the phone with some family members from Canada, they're asking us about the uh, tornadoes that struck Kentucky, and, and even though they're miles away, they've seen this on TV and they're interested. They, they see this on, this t on TV and they're, they're sympathetic. And yet we, beloved, know that tornadoes of fire are coming upon the earth. That it will make what's happened in Mayfield and Bowling Green look like nothing. And I don't mean to diminish anyone's suffering in that time. But we believe and know that literally winds of fire will sweep the planet and just knock every house down, not most houses down. And it won't even leave rubble. It will consume rubble. How much more ought our interests be piqued and our sympathies be awakened? 
You know that every one of your friends and family and neighbors who do not know Christ will definitely face a future far worse than anything unleashed on Mayfield. You know that. And what zeal ought it to add to our sharing the gospel? I mean, if I knew, that, so, if I was walking down the streets of Mayfield a few hours before the tornadoes, and I knew, I knew, I knew that in a moment these homes would be gone, wouldn't I say something? And you know this about the whole peoples of the earth. That more than just wind is coming, but wind with fire. Now on top of that, not only will false worshipers be condemned, but in the midst of all this false worship being condemned, true worshipers are commissioned. They are, they are sent out. They are they literally pressed out to go and bring the ungodly in. It's amazing. It's, it's one thing. We don't just say as Christians, wrath is coming upon the world. We say wrath is coming upon the world and we get to go out and tell people about the way to be delivered from it. That's what Isaiah is talking about here. Look at this. This is my favorite. This, I almost feel like I preached the whole book of Isaiah to get to this paragraph. It's so, it's so amazing. Verse 18, why will all the ungodly be judged? Verse 18, for I know their works. I know what they do. And that's why I bring fire upon the earth. Why will the ungodly be judged? For I know their works and their thoughts. What else is going on? And the time is coming to gather all the nations and tongues. Not only is there this time of wrath coming, but now is the time to go and gather all the nations and the tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. So people from all tribes and tongues and nations are going to come and see his glory. Now let me be clear. It's not they're going to come and see his glory if we send out missionaries. Right? It's going to happen no matter what. If we send out missionaries, we get to be a part of it. But it's happening. It is not dependent on Emmanuel Baptist Church to accomplish all the nations worshiping God. It is set in stone in God's Word. And we tremble at that Word. This is what will happen. Wrath will come and the nations will flood in. This is where history is going. Unstoppably. And they shall come, verse 18, and see my glory. Verse 19, and I will set a sign among them. All throughout the book of Isaiah, a sign was what God would give His people to tell Him He was going to work. Perhaps the most famous one is, here will be a sign. The virgin shall conceive and she will be a ch with child. He will set the sign of Christ among the peoples of the earth. He'll set Christ like a stake in the ground for all peoples to see. And like a magnet that draws everything in, Christ will bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation to Himself. I will send survivors. Now, you have to go way back in your memory to maybe remember Pastor Evan preaching on this word, survivors, in Isaiah 1. Maybe your mind doesn't go back to last January or to survivors. But essentially, the idea of survivors was this remnant. He's going to send out the remnant. He's going to save a remnant of the Jews and He's going to send them out to go get the nations. Which is, by the way, exactly what happened. 700 years after this was written, 2,000 years ago, God gathered in a remnant of Israel and then sent them out to go get the nations. Look at them. Look, I love this. I love this. I will send survivors to the nations to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud 
who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan to the coastlands far away, but have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall bring all your brothers. Now, look at this. I love that. All these people are going to come in to, the, to Jesus. When the Jews go out to tell them about Jesus, they're called brothers now. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules. If you didn't imagine it the first time, just think about it for a second. Horses and chariots and in litters and on mules and dromedaries to my holy mountain. Remember that great picture of salvation, my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring grain offerings and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Well, we could spend a lot of time in there, but I'll just point out two things. Of all these nations, notice there's two characteristics. One, it says in verse 19, they have not heard my fame or seen my glory. That's why we ought to be burdened for the nations. They haven't seen God's fame or heard his glory. You ever listen to music that you just loved? I mean, just music or a movie or some work of art. You're like, that, that was life-changing. Something got touched inside of me. I'll never be the same. What do you do? Put it on your playlist and promise never to tell anyone? No, there's an impulse in our soul. And more than one person pointed this out. But there's an impulse in our soul. When we see something beautiful, we've got to share it. And the tragedy of the nations is they have not seen His fame or beheld His glory. They're going through all the same crises as you are. Cancer, death, hearing loss, job loss, you name it. All the same difficulties we face. But without this, no knowledge of God. No awareness of His glory. Nothing to sweeten life. No life to explain life. Nothing to take away their guilt. Just all the hardships of being in a sinful world without any of the consoling glory that comes from knowing Christ. That's why we want to go. That's why we want to send. And then notice this other feature of these nations, especially one of them. It says this, that he'll send the gospel to Tarshish and Pull and Lud who draw the bow. What a weird thing to mention. Oh, by the way, one of these countries you go to will draw the bow. What's that? Well, it's a reminder that the nations we go to won't all swing open their doors wide and give us hearty handshakes and approval for coming. Often, like Jim Elliott, you'll be, let, you'll be met by the end of the spear. But they won't stop coming. You keep going, they won't stop coming. You get on the cam they'll get on camels, they'll get on dromedaries, they'll get on... Some of those three-wheeled taxis that Lisa was showing us, they'll get, on, they'll get in cars and buses. They'll, they'll do anything to get to hear about this Christ. False worshipers are condemned. True worshipers are commissioned. We'll leave Isaiah with this last point. True worshipers live eternally. False worshipers eternally die. Anyone feel tired this morning? 
What's wrong with you? I'm exhausted. Anyone feel tired this morning? Yeah. There's coming a day where you won't ever again. It won't, it won't matter how busy the day before was. Like every day will be more invigorating than the one before. Like that was great. Let's do it again and more. True worshipers eternally live. False worshipers eternally die. Look at verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. It's a comparison, right? As the new heavens and the earth that I make, as these are going to be eternal, as these new heavens and earth are going to be eternal, so will your offspring and your name remain. All the children of God, all the children born of God, all the children born into the new Jerusalem, all those who've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they will last as long as the new heavens and the new earth. Let me ask you this. How long do you expect the new heavens and the new earth to last? Forever. For as the new heavens and the new earth shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. In this life, we wrestle with so much futility. The older we get, we start asking, is there any point in me learning that? Because I won't get to use it very long. But in heaven, our life, our name, will last as long as the place itself, which is forever. In fact, what it basically says here is from month to month and from week to week we'll worship. Verse 23. From new moon to new moon. It's like a 28-day cycle, about once a month. From new moon to new moon. From Sabbath to Sabbath. That's week to week. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Now Isaiah ends on what you could think of as a dark note. I don't think we ultimately should just think of it as a dark note, but it, it ends on what you could easily think of as a dark note. And they, that's believers, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies. It ends with believers looking out over a sea of dead bodies. Of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their decomposition never ends. Their fire shall not be quenched, their torment never ends. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Well, let me close with this. Years ago, I was preaching through Joshua, and there's a sermon that Joshua gives at the end of his, at the end of his book, and he ends by condemning the people. And you're like, man, this guy should have taken a preaching class. Because he would know you don't end like that. You don't, you don't end with, you're all damned. And then I read Moses in Deuteronomy when I was preaching through Deuteronomy. And what, is De what does Moses do at the end of Deuteronomy? He ends with a series of sermons that all pronounce the condemnation of the people he's talking to. And you think, man, Moses would have benefited from that preaching class too. But then at some point, you got to think, maybe the preaching classes would benefit from the Bible. 
Maybe there's something to this. Because Isaiah does it as well. He ends on this note of judgment. What does it do? What does it do to end on a note of judgment? It does two things. First, it says what you and I need to hear so badly. We are not playing with God. If you do not listen to the salvation that Isaiah is announcing, you will be among the dead whose worm never dies and whose fire never comes out. This is not a joke. We are not playing. This is not just our religious tradition. This is not just helpful ethics to cultivate Western civilization. This is eternal life or eternal death at stake forever before us. And Isaiah wants to say, I've announced salvation. I've announced the Savior. But make no mistake, if you harden your heart to Him, and fail to listen to Him, you will be damned. Can you imagine there are some in this room who the first time they taste assurance, it will be in hell when they are assured that there is no more hope for them. And Isaiah would put that as an end, as an exclamation mark to say, don't let that happen to you. No salvation today. Run away from false religion and place your faith in Christ today. And he will save you to the uttermost. But there's one last reason why I think it ends this way. It's the same thing I've been preaching the last number of weeks. The reason God would march the believers out to the, the edge of hell and have them look out over the damned is not to spoil heaven for us. It's not to ruin our joy. It's to remind us that our salvation is complete. It's to remind us that our salvation is complete. All of those that you used to be attracted to you will see it as clear as day. They shall be an abhorrence to you. You will no longer be flirting with that kind of evil. You will see it for what it is. And that wrath that you were sometimes fearful of, that you ran to Christ to escape, you will see, I escaped it. He doesn't march us out to the edge of hell so we can say, we did it and they didn't. No, no. We will say, yes, they got what they deserved. But I got what Christ deserved. I got eternal life for Christ's sake. Robert Murray McShane, the great Puritan, a little later than the Puritans, but we can call him a Puritan. Robert Murray McShane wrote in a hymn about how he would only fully understand salvation once he was in heaven. Never fully understand it this side of heaven. He said, when I stand before the throne dressed in beauty not my own, when I see Thee as Thou art, love Thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. But in another stanza, he actually sings words that help us to understand the attitude of Isaiah 66, the standing on the, the, the edge of damnation. He says, when I hear the wicked call on the rocks and hills to fall, 
When I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When we see those who have not experienced salvation, we will stand there and we will say, Lord, we owe every minute of heaven to you. Every minute of heaven to you. May God give us grace to praise Him even now for the salvation that we will only fully enjoy then. Father, thank You so much for Your grace. Thank You so much for Your kindness. Thank You so much for Your help in studying and understanding something of Isaiah. Lord, there's so much all of us probably feel we could learn more. I know I do. But thank You for what You've taught us. Lord, instill in Emmanuel's heart a sense of Your greatness. Trembling at Your Word. Save us from trifling with Your Word. Save me from trifling with Your Word. Give us a great confidence in Your salvation, Your vindication, and Your ingathering of the nations. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.